Good morning, church. It's good to be with you uh, again. Uh, last night I was talking to a, a dear brother and uh, just catching up uh, with a couple brothers of mine just about how things are going. And I was really struck and blessed by something that he said. He said that, uh, he said this, he said, you know, I don't want to come out of this pandemic the same person. He said, I, I, I want to make sure that when this is over, I want to I emerge out of this as a different person. You know, I said this a while back when we, when we all collectively sort of entered this journey together, that this pandemic will do something to our spiritual lives. And I challenge us to, to, to not waste this pandemic because there's, there's, there's an opportunity for us to emerge from this deeper, more anchored, more spiritually mature than before, or we might emerge from this not having changed at all. And that's why we entitled this entire sermon series journey as Redeeming the Times, because we wanted us to be able to use this time in a redemptive way. Instead of just biding our time or waiting for things to get back to the way it was, anchoring ourselves in these fundamental truths that we talk about here all the time, right, church? We believe that God is still in control, amen? We believe that God still sits on the throne, amen? We believe that God is constantly and always at work in us and in the world. Those truths anchor us and believing in that, that we could use the season and time in a redemptive way that will bring growth, maturity, restoration, repentance, healing, reconciliation. You know, I've been pastoring for, for, a, for a bit. And there's a pattern that I see in, 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 in us, in me, in, in, in followers of Jesus. And that is, it seems to me that spiritual growth happens in the valleys of life more often than the mountaintop experiences. And the reason I think is this. As someone said, if dependency on Christ is the objective, and it is, then weakness is an advantage. If dependence on Christ is the objective, and it is in the Christian life, then weakness is an advantage. You see, it's often when we come to the end of ourselves. It's often when we come to the point of trying to be done with trying to control God, trying to control outcomes, trying to control circumstances, trying to control people. When we come to the end of ourselves and we surrender and yield, when we truly say, not just with our lips, with our lives, God, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. That's when we begin to experience the fullness of life that Jesus talked about. So we've been talking about what it means to live justly. And we're continuing that theme. And we've been saying that it's not about doing justice in as much as it is as a life response, right? A life style. And the anchoring passage that launched this was Micah 6, 8. Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with God is to know him intimately and to be attentive to what he desires and what he loves. And church, isn't that the end goal of life? And the end goal of life, to, to know Jesus intimately and to be about what he is about. 
Now, what does that consist of? Well, the text says it consists of doing justice and loving mercy, which, by the way, it seems at first like they're two separate things, but they're not. See, the term for mercy is the Hebrew word chesed, chesed. And it, talk, and it defines God's unconditional compassion and unconditional grace for his covenant people. And the word for justice, and by now you should have memorized this, word for justice is the word mishpat in Hebrew. And in Micah 6, 8, mishpat puts the emphasis on the action, while hesed puts the emphasis on the attitude or the motive behind the actions. That is, to walk with God, we are called to do justice, action, out of merciful love, motive. We can't say, God, I want justice for them, but mercy for me. God, I want you to treat them in ways that they deserve, but when it comes to me, please don't treat me in the way that I deserve. True justice requires what? That we do justice out of merciful love. And that merciful love comes out of walking humbly with God, where we experience intimacy with Him and encounter His merciful love for us so that our hearts are captured and melted by the truth that the perfect judge who was judged for us so that someday He could end all evil, all injustice without ending us, that God is the one who calls us to do justice and to love mercy. I love what Elaine Scurry in her book on beauty and being just says. She makes the case that the experience of true beauty makes us less self-centered and more open to justice. It's when we see the beauty of God's grace in Christ Jesus that it leads us powerfully towards justice. This is why what's anchored us and what's grounded us is this truth that living justly is an act of worship. Say that with me. Living justly is an act of worship. Living justly has to be a response to seeing who God is and seeing what he has done. This truth must anchor us first and foremost in living justly. Otherwise, we will wind up worshiping justice instead of worshiping a just God. It's worship that drains us, church, out of our self-righteousness and give us a love and humility that we need. And at the same time, it drains us out of fear and gives us the courage to pursue justice, to do justice, even when it's costly. It's a response to God. Now, the truth that we're going to have to come around for the next couple weeks is this. The title of today's sermon and next week is Justice and Generosity. See, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of justice, but in God's eyes, here's the truth. Generosity and justice are intricately linked. You know how we talk all the time around here about having to unlearn things as much as learning things? My challenge is somehow help you and me 
unlearned thinking of generosity purely in terms of charity, which conveys that it's an optional thing, and seeing generosity as a justice issue, as a righteousness issue. And that's going to be a radical paradigm shift for many of us who typically grew up in church and thought of generosity as something that good Christians do because it's a good thing to do, but it's not unjust. It's not a sin. But what we'll see is that that view doesn't fit with the strength or the balance of what Scripture teaches us, starting with Jesus. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, and for those of you that have English Bibles, there's these subject headings. That's not in the Bible, but, but translators put on there. Matthew chapter 6 literally has a setting, what? Giving to the needy. Jesus is talking about giving to the needy, giving to the poor. And this is what he says. Be careful not to practice your righteousness. Check that out. Do, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them, because if you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus directly connects radical generosity, not with charity, but to righteousness, to acts of justice. Not giving generously, not being radically generous with what God has entrusted to us is not just stinginess, paradigm shift, but it's an act of unrighteousness. It's unjust. And if you and I, listen church, if you and I would somehow understand and ground ourselves in this, it would revolutionize. It would revolutionize what we think in terms of generosity. Now, we are going to cover a ton of scripture today, okay? I was kind of joking with Emily, uh, who prepares all these slides for us, that, that, that she's going to have to be on her tiptoes, and you, take out your Bibles, because we're going to cover a ton of scripture, because in order for me to kind of uh, have you just paradigm shift, you need to know that this isn't my opinion, this isn't some subjective thing I'm coming from, this is God's word. So we're going to be parked in Malachi chapter 3, but we're going to go all over, especially the Old Testament, okay? Matthew chapter, uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what God says. See, I will send a messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 5. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, against adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Let me just stop here and just say this real quick. Rightly, we've been talking about righteousness as being more than personal morality, one that's public. But I want to be really clear. I'm just going to spend a couple minutes on this. I want to be really clear. It's not more than personal morality, but it's not less than personal morality, church. Being active in justice work does not excuse you or me to ignore other parts of the Bible. 
God says, I am offended and grieved just as much with adultery as I am with injustice. The Bible sees sexual immorality and material selfishness as both flowing from the same sinful heart that is self-centered rather than God-centered. The reason why the early church was radically different and why they changed their world for Jesus it's because in a world where people were promiscuous with their bodies, but stingy with their money and resources, Christians came along and they were stingy with their bodies and radically generous, radically promiscuous, if you will, with their resources and with their money. And the watching world said, what is that all about? Listen, we live in a day and age, and it grieves my heart we live in a day and age where it seems Christians, not all, but some Christians are like, I am about justice, but that means that I can ignore other things of what God calls me to. Let's be different. Can I get an amen? Let's be different. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I just read today that J.I. Packer, a heavyweight theologian, just recently passed away. His book, Knowing God, transformed my life when I was a college student. Do you know what his last admonition, when he was no longer able to speak and travel, do you know what his last admission was for the church? Four words. Glorify Christ in every way. Glorify Jesus in every way. And all of God's people said, amen. Malachi 6, verse, chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, a descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Verse 8, will a man rob God? Whoa. And yet you rob me. But you ask, God, 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 how do we rob you? In tithes and in offerings. God says, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Let's be clear about what this says. God says a lack of active and generous sharing of your resources, of your tithes, and of your offering isn't just being stingy. God says it's robbery. It's unjust. And if this was the only passage, you and I could sort of, you know, chalk it off as this kind of a one-off. The problem is that the strength and the balance of biblical teaching says you and I can't get away with that. Now, we don't have time here this morning to cover every single passage. I'm just going to quickly run us through, uh, walk us through some just to give you the balance and the strength of how seriously God, uh, God connects justice and righteousness with generosity. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 5. Suppose there is a righteous man, and the Greek word there, uh, the Hebrew word there is sadakik. And again, it should be very familiar to me by now, right? One of the words for justice, righteousness, sadakik, to be rightly related to God and to rightly relate to other people. Who does what is just, again, 
Hebrew word mishpat, to treat people equitably and right. Now, what does a righteous just man do? Verse 6, he does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. Verse 7, he does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit, there's a word again, robbery, but, explanation, explanatory clause, but he gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is sadakik, righteous. God says, if you do not actively and generously share your resource with the poor and the needy, you're not just being stingy. He says, you're guilty of robbery. It's being unjust. Another man who understood this and got this is Job. Now, I don't know what you think of the book of Job, and most of us kind of think of Job as lessons and how to endure suffering and come out on there. Job is one of the most powerful books in the Old Testament that talks about this issue of what it means to live righteously and justly when it comes to resources, money. In Job chapter 29, verse 14, Job says, I put on righteousness, that is, sadakah again, as my clothing, and justice, mishpat, was my robe and my turban. I love that metaphor. Check this out. He says he wears justice. Job says, I wear, he is constantly thinking about justice. He is so infused his daily life with thinking justly. It's as if his clothing covered his whole body. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Remember how we talk about you can't just add justice to an already busy life, but living justly requires that you and I wear justice. That is, think justly. Think about how living justly impacts every single area of our life. Verse 15, he says, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. Verse 16, and I was a father to the needy. He shares, he lends his money and his food to the poor freely. I took up the case of the stranger. Another passage in Job where he takes it even further, Job chapter 31, verse 13. Job says, if I deny justice to any of my servants, if I deny the desires of the poor, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, verse 28, then these also would be sins to be judged for. For I would have been unfaithful to God on high. To which you and I be like, whoa, 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 Job, Job, Job. You're taking this a little too far. Look, not helping the poor, not sharing your resources, it's being stingy. It's not sin. It's not unrighteousness. But Job, Ezekiel, Malachi, and numerous others asserts that it'd be a sin against God to think of our goods and our belongings only to ourselves. To not share his bread, Job says. His assets with the poor would be a sin against God. And by definition, a violation of God's justice. The question is why? 
Why is that? That not sharing our resources. Why not being radically generous is an act of unrighteousness, unjust? Job chapter 41, verse 11, God then comes and says, everything under heaven belongs to me. That's why. You see why God says, you're robbing me? You see why, why, why Job and Ezekiel call lack of generosity unrighteousness? Let me just bring it maybe to modern context. The Bible says that you and I relate to our money, time, talent, resources, the same way that a money manager relates to the wealth entrusted to him or her by their investor. If you're a money manager and you see your investments grow, and as a result, your investor gives you more and more money, you and I get excited because we're going to reap the fruits of that. But for no, not a single second, would any one of us, would any person think or entertain the idea that it's ours and we can do whatever we want with it? Why? Because we're ultimately accountable to our investor. You and I invest the money entrusted to our care in a way in line with the wishes, priorities, and desires of our investor. Otherwise, today we call that fraud, robbery. So here's the biblical truth. And I can talk for four sermons about this, and we don't have time to do that. That you and I need to anchor ourselves in this, and that is this. Living justly requires us to see that everything that we have belongs to God. Living justly requires you and I to see that everything that we have belongs to God. Living justly begins here. We are stewards in the kingdom who've been entrusted with the king's resources, who've been given kingdom assignments. A steward with the kingdom perspective says, God, everything that I have belongs to you. So what would you like to see happen with all that you have entrusted to my care? Because I want to seek your kingdom first and your righteousness, knowing that all of these things will be added unto me as well. Lord, let your kingdom come and let your will be done. And that's not some flimsy prayer we lift up, but it has tangible consequences. Say, God, everything that I have belongs to yours. And what is your kingdom assignment for me? How would your lifestyle change? How would my lifestyle change if everyday choices were made with this filter? Put this label on everything that we have. Put this label, provided by and belonging to God for his use only. What if we put that label on our homes, on our clothes, furniture, money, car, resources, and our time? How would living as if God owns everything influence the way you shop, influence the way you vacation, influence the way you give, influence everything? Real quick sidebar. <laughs> Can I ask, are you like, do you wear justice? And by the way, pun totally intended. What do I mean? Do you realize that you and I live in a consumer, uh, consumer economy that puts a lot of power into our hands concerning daily choices? 
How often do you and I see beyond product labels to the names and faces involved in the production chain? Do you realize that indiscriminate and frankly gluttonous consumption in America is an injustice all on its own? Remember how we talked about in Isaiah 58 that in order to live justly, we need to be, we need to be willing to see the injustice and not turn away. So church, here's the challenge, not just for you, but for me. Are you and I educating ourselves about equitable systems of global production, trade, distribution, such as local trade, fair trade, and free trade? Are you and I willing to pay more to ensure that the names and faces of all the people involved in the production chain are treated and compensated equitably? Are you and I willing to boycott products that's made using bonded labor or products that we know cause violence? Are you and I willing to see immigrant laborers with love and compassion? knowing that they are our flesh and blood? Are you and I willing to disadvantage ourselves to ensure that they share in the advantages of society? Do you see how living justly is about every single day choices that we make? Living justly requires to see that everything we have belongs to God. And secondly, living justly requires us to weave all that we've been entrusted with into the lives and needs of others living justly requires that we weave everything that we've been entrusted with into the lives and needs of others the word rob in malachi 3 is a very interesting word it literally in hebrew means to oppress to pillage and to plunder it's not used very often and more interesting, this is why scholars, Hebrew scholars have been confused by why God would say that. It literally describes a wealthy, powerful nation invading, conquering, and pillaging, and plundering another weak nation. That's why when God says, when you rob me, that's what you're doing. You're plundering. You're pillaging. When you use what you've been entrusted with for yourself and not share it with the larger human community, you're pillaging, you're oppressing, you're plundering me. Now, to even begin to understand that, you and I need to understand the backdrop and the background that is, that is, that is a context for so many of these Old Testament scripture passages. See, the Bible describes the making of the world as the weaving of a garment. Now, you remember, woven garments were long in the making and valuable in ancient times. And so they were an apt metaphor, an apt metaphor for the wonder of creation. And you go, Peter, is that, is, is that even found in the Bible? Let me show you. Psalm 104.6, the psalmist says, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. Psalm 102.26, they Psalm is talking about creation. They will perish, but you remain forever. They will wear out like old clothing, but you will change them like a garment and discard them. Over and over and over again in the New Old Testament, you find got the creation of sea, the clouds, the, the, the light, all of these things as garments that God has woven and now wears, which is why when in describing shalom, the state in which all facets of creation is functioning the way God intended, 
and I've said this a thousand times, the rabbis illustrated it how by using a fabric in which threads, thousands of them were intricately woven together. And when all the threads are rightly related to each other, the result is nothing missing, nothing broken. A state in which there is wholeness, universal flourishing, spiritually, physically, socially, in every way. What is biblical justice? Biblical justice involves making individuals and communities and the cosmos whole by putting things back together, by making things right. Why? Because when we rejected the lordship, the kingship of God, everything in creation unraveled. When our relationship with God unraveled, our relationship with each other unraveled, and all of creation unraveled, we live in a world of sin where people take advantage of each other, abuse each other, ignore each other. That's why people say the fabric of our society is unraveling every aspect of creation economic social moral legal political is not working as it should and if you only pay attention it can be overwhelming it could be overwhelming and these statistics I'm just going to run right through them because I want you to study on your own and see how much inequity there is in our world the world's richest 1% today have more wealth than twice as much wealth as 6.9 billion people. 1% more than twice as much wealth as 6.9 billion people. Almost half the world is living on less than $5.50 a day. There are 821.6 billion people who are chronically undernourished. 328 million children are living in extreme poverty. 250 million children will not be allowed to go to school. Every day, 10,000 people die because they lack access to affordable health care. Each year, 100 million people are forced into extreme poverty due to Medicare or health care costs. Human slavery today reached an all-time high, enslaving nearly 40 million, 40 million, 40 million lives created in the Imago Day of God. And over 700 million people don't have access to clean drinking water. Our world is deeply, deeply broken. Why is this about justice? Why is this about justice? I love what Brian Stevens says in his book, Just Mercy. He says the opposite of poverty is not wealth. In too many places, the opposite of poverty is justice. Because economic stability has far more to do with where someone lives rather than who they are. Entire communities can either assume access to proper education, decent jobs, and reasonable health care, or they can assume lasting consequences of being disadvantaged. We don't all start out with equal privileges and assets. And if you're paying attention, this pandemic has just ripped open and laid bare the truth that there's massive inequities. Even look at our city and our educational system. Do you realize that my three kids, my three kids, 
just by being where they're born, where they're born, have two to three hundred times better chance to have a flourishing, happy life than a kid born in Englewood. There's an inequitable distribution of goods and opportunities in the world. And that's why God says, if you've been assigned the goods of this world by me and you don't share, invest, plow that into the human community, it's not just stinginess, it's unjust. Psalm 99.4, the strength of the king loves justice. You, God, are about and you've established equity. You've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. So how do we make things whole? We'll talk more about this next week as well. How do we make things right? By preaching the gospel? Yes! And we go to places. We go to things. We go to people where things are falling apart, where the weaker members of our society are falling through the fabric, and we repair it. How? We weave all that we have. We weave all that we are. We weave all that we've been entrusted with into the needs of others. We thread, we lace, we press sacrificially our time, our education, our goods, our power, our resources, Sources into their lives and into their needs. What is justice? Isaiah 58, 7. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter so that when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Interconnectedness, interwovenness is what, is what describes all of humanity. I am responsible for you. You are responsible for me. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. Whatever affects one directly affects one all indirectly. God has given you and me resources, opportunity, and what is I call? Share that. Invest that. Plow that with the larger human community when we do how amazing is this you and i are actually participating in the work of making things right of making things whole of putting creation back together so that nothing is missing nothing is broken see the amazing truth is that god has already begun the healing process of making creation whole by ushering in the kingdom of God through Jesus' death and resurrection. But his work to bring about wholeness doesn't just happen via supernatural means. God says what? I have given you the resources. I have given you the goods to work and participate in the reweaving, repairing of the broken world. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11, Paul says, you will be enriched in every way so that, why does God give these things to us? So that you can be generous on every occasion. And through your generosity, and I love this, it will result in thanksgiving to God. Justice isn't just about obedience. When we live justly, God says, it will lead to people glorifying me. Is that good news? It will lead to people saying, you are an amazing God. 
Why did the early Christians set the world ablaze with the gospel? How did a small, marginalized sect of nobodies conquer the most powerful empire at the time? Because they had better buildings? Because they had better worship services? Better programs? It was a radical generosity. Their preaching was backed up with their living. People didn't see their words. They saw their deeds of generosity. People aren't. People aren't going to just believe our words, church. James chapter 2. What good is it? What good is it when you have faith without deeds? It's living justly with our resources that authenticates our faith. That's when our faith is made real. You and I are living in a time of unprecedented need. COVID-19 has caused millions of people to be unemployed. People are struggling to put food on the table. And it's an enormous opportunity for the church to be the church. Adversity gives birth to greatness. The greater the challenge, I believe the greater the opportunity. A scared world needs a fearless Church in a world of fear, panic, self-privation, and hoarding, scarcity mentality. What an opportunity. What an opportunity for you and I as followers of Jesus to say that we follow a Savior. And following him has radically altered and changed our lives so that instead of self-privation, we lay down our lives. Instead of hoarding, we give ourselves away radically and generously. Let's look at the rest of this. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Where do we get the power to do this? Here we go. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. This is one of the most boldest promises in all scripture. Test me, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. I've never met someone, and I mean this, I've never met someone in all of my years of ministry who became poor because they sought his kingdom first. But I've met plenty of people who got into financial trouble because they sought their kingdom first. Say, so Peter, how can we trust him in these times? I'll tell you how. Because God opened the floodgates of heaven and gave us the ultimate blessing ultimate blessing where do you see that do you remember the first verses in malachi chapter 3 verse 1 i will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me and suddenly the lord you are seeking will come to his temple the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come says the lord almighty who is this messenger of the covenant say with me who is this messenger of the covenant they ultimately came and fulfilled god's covenant promises to his people his name is jesus and Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, you and I might become rich. This is my hope. This is my power. This is my motivation. It's not enough just to simply know him. 
It's the experience of His beauty. It's the experience of His beauty. It's the experience of the beauty of God's grace in Jesus Christ that will make us less self-centered and empower us to live justly. What happened on the cross? How do we know that someday the world will be made right? The world will be put back together. The world will be made whole. How do we know that a world without injustice, world without oppression, world without suffering, world without death is on its way when so much of the injustice, oppression, and suffering is our fault? How do we know? How can we be sure? Because of the cross. Because of the cross. The cross is why he can end injustice without ending us. The cross says that he can make us rich because he became poor. The cross says he can liberate us because he was oppressed. The cross says he can end all suffering without ending because he suffered on our behalf. The cross says he can make us alive because he became dead. And when the beauty of that captures your heart, to the degree that it captures your heart, will you and I be able to do in Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, practice righteousness with our money, with our resources. Only then will we be able to be willing to disadvantage ourselves, to advantage the community. Only then will we be able to share what we have for the greater common good. Only then will we be able to reweave and remake all of creation. A man with this, an intriguing story, a real life story of how an entire community doing justice and seeking shalom by disadvantaging themselves to advantage the community is found in Nora Allen Gorse's book, Everyone Here Spoke Sign Language. In the 1980s, Gross was researching hereditary deafness on Martha's Vineyard. In the 17th century, the original European settlers were all from a region in Kent, England called the Weald, where there was a high incidence of hereditary deafness. Because of their geographical isolation and intermarriage, the percentage of deaf people increased across the whole island. And by the 19th century, one out of every 25 people in the town of Chilmark was deaf. In another small settlement, almost a quarter of the people could not hear. In most societies, physically handicapped people are forced to adapt to the life patterns of the non-handicapped, but that is not what happened on the vineyard. One day, Kroos was interviewing an older island resident. She asked him what the hearing people thought about deaf people. Well, we didn't think anything about them. They were just like everyone else, he replied. Kroos responded that it must have been necessary for everyone to write things down on paper in order to communicate with them. The man responded in, in surprise. No, no, no. You see, everyone here spoke sign language. The interviewer asked if he meant deaf people's families. No, 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 he answered. Everybody in town. I used to speak it. My mother did. Everybody did. Another interviewer said, those people weren't handicapped. They're just deaf. One other remembered, they, the deaf, were like anybody else. I wouldn't be overly kind because they'd be sensitive to that. I just treat them the way I treated anybody else. See, indeed, what happened was that an entire community had disadvantaged itself in mass for the sake of a minority. Instead of making the non-hearing minority learn to read lips, the whole hearing majority learn signing. 
all the hearing became bilingual, so deaf people were able to enter into full social participation as a result of doing justice that is disadvantaging themselves. The majority experienced shalom. Nothing missing, nothing broken. They included people in the social fabric who in other places would have fallen through it. Perhaps the most interesting aspect of Croce's research was the revelation of how hearing people had their own communication abilities enhanced. They found many uses for signing besides communication with the deaf. Children signed to one another during sermons in church or behind a teacher's back at school. Neighbors could sign to one another over distances in a field or even through a spyglass telescope. One woman remembers how her father would be able to stand on a windy cliff and sign his intentions to fishermen below. Another member remembers how sick people who could not speak were able to sign to make their needs known. In other words, the disadvantage that the hearing vineyarders assumed, the efforts and trouble to learn another language, turned out to be for their benefit after all. See, their new abilities made life easier and more productive. They changed their culture in order to include an otherwise disadvantaged minority, but in the process, they made themselves and their society better. The principle that I want you and I to remember, and we'll come back around to this next week, the strong must disadvantage themselves for the weak, the majority for the minority. Or the community phrase, and the fabric breaks. Let's pray together. I'm going to give you a moment just to reflect on today's word. And I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, our world is a world of aspiring and acquiring so much noise and constant motion. And this pandemic has disrupted so much of what we call normal and what we assume to be our right, our future. Father, will you help us not waste this opportunity to rethink, reassess, and revalue what really matters in life. Father, so much of our drivenness and busyness is rooted in pride and in fear and greed. The pride of having a bigger seat at the table, the fear of missing out, and the greed of defining success is just having more and more stuff. By the work of your Holy Spirit, show us the difference between trusting in our status and resting in you, Jesus. Father, forgive us for the ways we encourage burnout, whether at work or home at church. Forgive us for not being content with what you have given us. Jesus, will you make us, knowing you and being known by you, be the greatest joy and inheritance of our lives, of our identity and of our security. 
Father, riches, recognition, and reputation make such lousy gods and idols as you show us more of the beauty, of the beauty, of the beauty and love of Jesus. Please come and will you topple the idol of our hearts, topple the idol of our hearts. Help us value genuine faith more than we value an easy life. Father, whether in telling us and telling you what to do, we choose to set our gaze on you. Father, we know that the clearer we see you, the clearer we see you, and the more we see you, the more fears shrink to their proper size. We trust you. We worship you. Father, we trust that one day you'll put all things right and make all things new and beautiful. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Not as we will be, because that's not the gospel. Not as we ought to be, because that's not the gospel, but as we actually are. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.